0: Welcome to Four Quarter Lives, a podcast exploring the profound impact of longer, healthier and more engaged lives, not only for ourselves and our couples, but also for companies and countries. I'm Aviva Wittenberg-Cox, and on this week's Four Quarter Lives, I talk with Bruno Pallier, the research director at France's Élite Sciences Politique University. The common government response to aging societies around the world is to have people work longer, but people aren't always in agreement nor are companies always willing to keep them. The French protests at raising the retirement age have been well covered by the international press, but not always very well understood. Bruno Palier works on the comparative political economy of welfare state reforms. He's co-led a project on the world politics of social investment and another on growth and welfare in global capitalism. And his take is that France and the French aren't half as unusual as the media would have us think. The unrest between employers and employees reflects systemic shifts grounded in our new demographics, and it's likely to be coming to the country you're in. Are we ready? Bruno Pallier, welcome to Four Quarter Lives. Delighted to have you.
1: Thank you very much.
0: So in this podcast today, we want to get closer to an understanding, if we can, of France. France has been so much in the news Everyone, especially the Anglo-Saxons, seems to laugh rather condescendingly at the French rebelling in the streets about raising a retirement age that many find extraordinarily low, 62. But you argue that we're actually comparing apples and oranges and that the French retirement age really isn't all that different from the Germans or other European economies. Can you help us navigate this? Explain both the disinformation and the media's kind of love of misunderstanding France. So I'm not sure to know why
1: our media loves to misunderstand France, but this is probably a long history. We do that too in France, you know, to uh, <laughs> try to make uh, fun of, of the Brits. So this is a long story and probably the competition between two empires in the past. But anyway, what I'm more... <laughs> interested is to convey the idea that indeed we compare apple and oranges. And one of the reasons is that because all pension systems have both oranges and apple. In the sense that there is the apple is at what age you can go on pension and nobody can prevent you from doing that. And in France, it's 62. In Germany, it's 63. Okay, you can go on pension. The problem is that if you Go on pension and have not paid enough contribution. For instance, in Germany, you need to pay 45 years of contribution to have a full pension. You will have a rebate, you will have a penalty right. for living early. And this 63 in Germany, this is the apple, has to be compared to the French apple, which is 62. Okay. This America. is this
0: kind of like what we would call an early retirement age. It's the earliest it's age yes, of The earliest, yes. The earliest one.
1: Retirement. But if you decide to go on pension and didn't pay enough years of contribution in a a system like the German one or the French one, then there will be a penalty. And the penalty actually is higher in France than in Germany. The penalty is 5% less of what you could expect per missing year as a penalty on top of the proportionality of calculating the pension. Whereas in Germany, it's 1.3% less per missing years. Right. So it's that's a
0: huge, right? The cost yeah, the cost of retiring earlier for a French president is then multiples higher than it was in Germany.
1: And that's one thing which has not been said is that a lot of low-paid women who have a very chunked career, partial time, uh, some years out of work, they have to wait longer until the orange time. And uh, this is what I want to say. So there are oranges in pension system, and the orange is the age at which even if you don't have enough years, there will be no penalty anymore. And this age is 67 in France. It will be 67 in Germany, but only in a few months, in a few years, sorry. Currently, it is 60 years and a half. And this is typically the, the 68 that is mentioned for UK, the 67 that is mentioned in Italy. This is the age at which if you retire, Even if you don't have enough contribution, there will be no penalty. So actually, if we want to really compare pension system, we have to compare two things. At what age you can leave and nobody can prevent you, but it's at your own risk of losing a lot as compared to the full pension you could get if you work longer. And at what age, even if you don't have enough years and contribution, there will be no penalty. These two ages should be compared. And in France, these two ages are... 62, the one which is mentioned in all medias, and 67. And if 62 is amongst the earliest indeed in in, in Europe, but it is 62 as compared to 63 for Germany, for instance, as compared to 63 in Sweden also, this is not, you know, the real comparison between 62 and 67. This is way too exaggerated. And and once again, typically, cleaning ladies. Long-term carers, you know, women taking care of old men and old women, and they don't have a full career. They miss many years of contribution. They have been working part-time. These poorly paid ladies, they have to wait until 67 to ask for their pension.
0: Right. Okay, so... Let's just be clear. If that, that was super clear. There are two retirement ages. One is the first earliest age you can retire in France at 62, only if you've worked 43 years, which means you started awfully young working, which is probably not the majority of the population. And for people who haven't had all the years, the real official retirement age is therefore 67 which compares
1: I mean, the, what, what sixty seven means is that even if you don't have enough years, you will not have a sanction. If you decide to leave earlier, then you will have a, a sanction. Of course, you can you can leave earlier; it's not forbidden, but you will have a sanction.
0: So I, I, I yeah, sorry, I called you up and asked you to get on this podcast because I had never read or heard this number of sixty seven in the press up till then. And I was just astonished that there seems to be this complete miscommunication for the international readers. Is it any clearer for the French? Is Are these two retirement ages and their consequences better communicated to the French than they are to the rest of the world?
1: I think it's an excellent question. I'm not totally sure that the French know about exactly the fact that there are two ages. But what I know is that they are waiting for 62 to be able to leave, right? Because before that, they cannot do, except for some uh, profession. But they also know that if they don't have their years of contribution, there will be sanctioned. Therefore, a lot of people actually wait for having their 43 years of contribution to go on pension. That's why in reality, the real number, which is interesting, is 63 in reality. In France, on average, people go on pension at the age of 63. That's what should be compared to. And this is amongst the lowest real age of retirement in Europe, but there are countries with even earlier. And this is to be compared with 65 as the average age of retirement in Germany or Sweden. And here you see that the fact that in the media you say, well, Germany is 67 doesn't mean so much people retire in reality at the age of 65 in Germany as compared to, in reality, 63 in France. What's the main difference between these two numbers, 63 for France, the real age of retirement and 65 in Germany? To my view, it's much more employer's decision than worker's decision, right? Employers in Germany, as well as in Sweden, they are very keen to keep the older worker because they are lacking of workers. You know, there are a uh, labor shortage, especially for skilled workers in both Germany and Sweden. And they really want to keep the ones they have been training the good workers. And for that, what they do is to really develop strategies to keep all the workers in the workplace. What do they do? They train them after the age of 55, 60, etc. They improve the working condition to make sure that people are not, you know, damaged, used yep. by a worker. And third, they reorganize the end of the career to change the responsibilities, to shift to mentorship, you know, to transmit experience and these kind of things. These are real positive activating policies. We don't this, have... This is what we
0: would call being longevity ready. This is what exactly no. what everybody is now advocating for yes. employers everywhere, that they have to get ready for this older population. And what you're saying is that there's some countries that are already there. Absolutely. And Sweden among them.
1: Yeah, and this explains why they have the highest participation rate of older worker. If you look at the numbers, between 55 and 65 years old workers, you have employment, which means people at work, 77% in Sweden and 70% in Germany. And the number is much lower in France. Indeed, it is only f- 56%. But if we look from that lens at the things, we see that French employers try to get rid of the older workers as soon as possible, rather than try to keep them on board. So you don't see training policies for older workers. You know, clearly statistics show that after the age of 45, you will be told by your employer that you're too old to get a training. Can you imagine? forty-five? You don't see really investment in improving working condition. You really see employers considering that older workers are too expensive and I should get rid of them. And you see a lot of what we call social plans and also uh, firing agreements where you see a lot of older workers to be uh, pushed.
0: Nudged out the door as of 45.
1: And here you you really see a kind of... uh, contradiction in the speeches by the employers, because at the national level, they say, oh, people should work until the age of 67, you know, and and perhaps even more. But on the ground, within FIRM, you see HR and and others trying their best to get rid of uh, older workers. Which means that this is one of the many reasons why French people are so angry about the situation, because if you remember my number, half of the older workers you know people age over 55 they are not at work anymore half of them almost yeah. half of them yeah. so when they are saying, you should work longer you know from 62 to 64 they say but look i've been sacked i'm not uh, in job so i will only lose the capacity to gain more uh, rights to pension And they don't want to keep me in firms. They didn't do anything to keep me in firms. So this is a contradiction in the speech in employers' sign, which means big tension in workers' life.
0: Right. They have no choice. And and you, you say that the root of this difference in policy between German and Swedish employers who've really organized proactively for an aging population and France that is still nudging anybody out the door has its roots in sort of labor negotiation traditions between these countries. Can you elaborate on that?
1: The first route is really demographic. France has a fertility rate since the 90s, which is much higher, much, much higher than the the German one and higher than the Swedish one. Mm -hmm. Right we have a, a fertility rate of uh, 1.7 it was the lowest whereas in germany it was 1.3 1.4 for sweden and we we we, we came back to uh, almost 2 in the 2000 so if you add now 20 years you see that there has been a lot of young people entering the labor market around 300,000 per year Regularly in the 2000s, whereas you had three times less in Germany. So this creates very different situation in the labor market. So you can get rid of the elderly because you will have newcomers who are less costly, if you wish, in terms of wages. That's the first reason. But the second indeed is because there has been very difficult. It has been very difficult for what we called in germany social partners you know employers and employees to come to agreement on a common strategy to keep the workers on board because on the one hand employers considered the older workers to be too expensive and on the other hand the employees considering that the working conditions were tough and tougher considering that there was no opportunities to stay in good uh, condition they negotiated to be able to uh, leave as early as possible so there was a kind of a hidden common interest in uh, Forgetting about uh, long careers on both sides, if you wish. So that's, that's probably what explains why you, we don't have activation policies in France.
0: Very interesting. And then between the French and the Germans, you're suggesting that it was actually the government that came in and covered up the gap in France by paying out to settle the issues.
1: So this is, this is really what, what we see is that actually in the 80s, the main solution for unemployment was to tell the elderly, why don't you go home, we will pay you. This was an early retirement schemes. There was many in uh, in European countries, but in France particularly, you know, there was uh, almost 8, 800,000 departure for early retirement in 1982, just to give you an example. Also, the retirement age at 60, which was decided in 83 in France, was conceived and presented as an employment policy, nature, much more than a, a pension policy. You know, Let us remove the elderly workers from the labor market. This will leave more rooms for our young people. This is not exactly what happened in reality, because in reality, what happened is firms didn't hire new people to replace the, uh, the, the going out ones. On the contrary, they asked the remaining ones to produce more. And this is the beginning of what I call hyper-productivity in France, intensification of work in France. Is, if you look at how many hours, how many weeks, and how many people work in France, you would say, well, oh, these are lazy. You know, they don't work uh, as much as we do, etc. Even though if you compare the number of hours work in France and in Germany, this is very comparable because there is a lot of part-time work in, in Germany. But anyway, you can say from a British or American point of view, not many hours. The problem is that since there are less people working less time, they work more. They have a, Those who work have a hyper productivity. They have to really produce a lot in less time, if you wish. And this means intensification of work, which also means degradation of working condition, more burnout, more uh, working accident actually, and also this will to leave As soon as possible, because our work is too intense and too exhausting.
0: So that's another number that, and another message I think that international readers very rarely hear is that France has one of the highest productivity per hour worked in the world. And everybody keeps looking at the French as these, you know, easy lay. I think everybody's actually really just jealous of the French. You look too good. You eat too well. You love too beautifully. And it makes for a lot of envy, right? That's the problem. Yes, we
1: need need to get rest after tough work, right? That's (laughs) the the idea. So uh, uh, tough work, good rest. That's Uh, basically the idea.
0: So let's zoom out one more step because what you're saying is actually post-pandemic, And with these new demographic shapes appearing in all these countries where basically Germany and Sweden were kind of the tip of the iceberg. Now we're all getting older. The population of young people moving into labor force is drying up. And you're now looking at the U.S. and the U.K. and their social unrest as the first signs of, what, a new balance of power between employee and employer?
1: Well, I think that that's exactly what is currently happening. You know, how do we understand that the French have mobilized so fiercely against the pension reform, which which was basically asking you to work two years more? And the French say, no, we don't want to work more under this condition. And should we consider that as the French exception, uh, you know, the lazy ones wanting uh, more holidays or to keep their privileges? Or should we understand that as a protest against tougher working condition, intensification of work, under circumstances where the workers can protest against them. And I would favor the second interpretation, in the sense that over the last 40 years, in all occidental countries, because of globalization, the competition of uh, cheaper countries, people had to accept tougher working conditions, some precariousness, you know, Otherwise, they would be sacked, unemployed, or they would be offshoring, etc. So there was a a pressure that led most workers in many countries to accept more hours of work, more intense uh, working condition, precarization, less wage increase, all these kinds of things. However, demography once again changed the situation. So you really see decreases in unemployment in all occidental countries and this may be due to policies but this is really due to a uh, demography and this is the big trend. And the second one which is more recent is COVID. COVID has lead People to take a step back and look at their working condition, look at their relationship with employers, and discover that they could be more distanced, uh, you know, literally and and also in their political uh, perception. That work could be reorganized; that they could have a say in that. So that this is really what COVID contributed to. And now, what you see, and not only in France, is movement by workers calling for being recognized in, in their demand, participate in the decision. Have better working condition. And I say not only in France, because if you look at Germany, you currently have strikes, strong strikes yeah. in the public sector, in the Deutsche Bahn, etc., to call for wage increase because they are not ready to accept the current condition if no wage increase. And as you know, Germany, if you have strike, it's really because the balance of power has changed so that they they can go on strike, and also that they consider that they need to have a concession made. Today. Then I turn to UK, and I don't know if you realize how extraordinary it is to have trade unions being able to call for, for strikes and having strikes. You know, when I teach comparative political economy to my students, I say what Thatcher has done; she has killed the trade unions, and this was true for twenty years. This is not anymore. This is again. Uh, new power in the hands of workers, basically thanks to demography and the distance that they got. Now, if we turn to Canada or the US, we have what is called the quiet quitting. You know, these people who do not return into the formal labour market because they don't want to accept the conditions that are offered. So I think this is a much more broader trend that we see into uh, post-industrial economies, if you wish, where demography, COVID, this common experience allows a return of the workers collectively to find bank to get better wage, better working condition. And I think that's pretty interesting time to observe.
0: Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. And a wonderful summary of the real underlying movements that are shifting our world. And the fact that they're largely driven by this new demographic shape that is common to all these countries can I yeah, dare? Because then?
1: if I may, just on this, demographic, everybody agrees that population are aging. Therefore, we need to uh, do pension reforms. Yes. But people forget that if the population ages, it also means that there are less people in the active population. Therefore, they are stronger, They have more capacities to negotiate their wage and working condition, et cetera.
0: Absolutely. And if the solution that every government seems to come up with is that they have to work longer... You also have to ensure that they don't burn out and get exhausted and end up on your public healthcare systems because they aren't well. So dare I end with asking you, what do you see for the future? Are we going to learn from this pretty, it's a pretty obvious lesson you're giving us of labor shortages, older workers and a need to renegotiate the employer employee contract and adapt completely to aging aging realities. Will we do it or are we all going to end up in the streets in incomprehension because we don't actually understand what's happening?
1: The first point to be made is that when you see new trends, there are, of course, competition in understanding and what I propose as an understanding will be contested by many other people saying, you know, what is happening in Germany has nothing to do with what is happening in France. So there is a first thing is do, do we agree on the, on, on the common trend? The second issue is, of course, Will the workers be able to be united enough to uh, be able to wait into the the debate, the negotiations? And we know how right-wing governments, employers are good at dividing the workers, you know, are promising things to some and not to others. Here there is a a third-part player, which is more and more important in many places in Europe, which are radical right parties. And they do speak to some workers, but uh, put them in confrontation with what they call the the welfare beneficiaries and the migrants, so they divide the working class, if you wish. So if there are too too many divisions, of course, the workers' powers will be unable to reach out, better working conditions, et cetera. And the third is that we need compromise and compromise. I mean, this is the history of Europe, and the compromise, to my view, should be based on quality, because both employers and employees have interest in building what I call an economy of quality, which is increasing the quality of the production of the services, therefore the qualification of workers, therefore the quality of the workplace and and of jobs. And this revolution of quality is a potential political compromise for many partners in in Europe and may be a solution to uh, something we haven't mentioned yet, which is global warming we need to shift from a quantitative economy you know obsessed with the quantity we produce towards a quanti- qualitative economy where the obsession is much less to produce more but to produce better so that people are the people's welfare at work is improved and that the services provided are good and not numerous and cheap that's the big revolution ahead of us I'm afraid that division and the acceleration of climate change may not make this a smooth path towards a new world.
0: Yeah, I fear you're right. A word of advice for any companies listening? How can they get ahead of this curve?
1: I mean, the, a lot of companies know that the better they treat their worker, the more productive these are productive in the sense of being creative on emphasizing uh, on being reliable on making good product and good services so if they play the quality they have a gain in treating when their their they're workers and you have tons of examples in uh, german industry um, from from that to uh, the google Map for the coders in uh, in in california so this this is something that is well known the only Problem is whether companies are betting on quality or on quantity. And if quantity is the trick, you know, trying to do as much as possible for the cheapest, as possible. We know the best solution for them is offshoring, is uh, pressure on their workers. You know, uh, exploiting them. And this is I have no advice to give to somebody who wants to exploit others.
0: I think that is a perfect end note: quality versus quantity. I think that is probably the um, the choice that faces all of our societies at this point in time and our collective futures, unfortunately. Bruno Palier, thank you so much for this incredibly clear and concise summary of what is pretty thorny, incomprehensive, sort of uh, pension geeky dim, but you've turned it into a politically fascinating divide. Thank you so much for those insights.
1: Thank you very much for the invitation. A bientôt. A bientôt. <laughs>
0: For more thinking about the impact of our four-quarter lives, you can read my column at Forbes and subscribe to my Elderberries newsletter on Substack. Let's design lives that aren't just longer, but better.